0: But as long as the behavior and neurology are adaptive, what does it matter, whether the beliefs are true or false? It makes no difference to the adaptiveness. Natural selection is interested in adaptive behavior Behavior. and in adaptive causes of behavior, say neurology. It doesn't give a hoot about whether your beliefs are true or false. You can believe whatever you want as far as (laughs) natural selection goes as long as you behave in the right way. Hi, I'm Dr. Devin Sanchez-Curry, and you're listening to Dialogues, Meditations, and Analyses, a companion podcast for the Problems of Philosophy course I teach at West Virginia University. You just heard the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga explaining his evolutionary argument against naturalism. The thesis that there are no supernatural entities, including God. For today's episode, I've invited Dr. Nabil Hamid back on the podcast to unpack Planning's argument that if you believe in evolution, then you better believe in God, as well as the atheist philosopher Daniel Dennett's objections thereto. In so doing, we'll discuss the way in which naturalism is itself like a religion. Examine a central problem in the philosophy of mind, the problem of explaining how human beings have minds featuring true beliefs as opposed to mere information processors like computers, and return to last week's question of the relationship between faith and reason by debating the merits of planting as epistemological foundationalism, the Cartesian stance that worldview should be justified on the basis of basic foundational beliefs versus Dennett's epistemological coherentism, the stance that worldviews should be justified on the basis of their internal coherence. That's a lot of ground to cover, so let's jump right in. Here's Dr. Nabil Hamid introducing this week's Notes on
1: Reading The topic of the debate is the conflict between science and religion, and Plantinga begins by noticing that this could be understood in many different ways. But one thing that he clearly wants to set aside is the issue of whether either theism or science are internally in contradiction or something, or there's some sort of like internal tension that should be fatal to either of them. So I think that two physical theories, general relativity and quantum mechanics are in tension does not compel us to abandon physics. Um, physics, Physicists rightly continue doing their research in order to overcome those internal conflicts um, and he wants to say that in the same way that, that the fact that there might be a tension between, say, God's goodness and the reality of evil in the world and suffering in the world um, also does not compel us to abandon theistic belief altogether. So he's like focusing on a specific kind of conflict, and that's um, a conflict or various sorts of conflicts between um, a scientific view of the world and a religious view of the world in past times and in present times and examining whether those conflicts compel us to move one way or the other or whether we can, whether those conflicts are merely apparent. Right. All right. So planting his opening move, in his opening move, he's focusing on a very specific recent point of dispute in the science-religion debate having to do with the theory of evolution by natural selection. And he specifically wants to argue that a... Evolutionary theory in its standard contemporary form is not incompatible with theistic belief. Um, he wants to argue that the, some, some, several of the most prominent anti-theistic arguments that involve evolution fail. He wants to argue that even if current science were incompatible with theistic belief, um, it wouldn't follow that theism is irrational, that somebody right. is therefore compelled to give up their belief in God. And then the fourth thing he wants to argue for is that is a specific view that he calls naturalism, um, which he takes to be the view that there is no such thing as um, the God of theistic religion, specifically Abrahamic religions, and presumably that the view that there's there are no supernatural entities. I mean, he wants to argue that this view that he calls naturalism is actually incompatible with evolution even though a lot of the most prominent contemporary popular theorists of evolution and perhaps a lot of practicing evolutionary biologists as well may sign on to naturalism.
0: Yeah, so Dennett is going to end up agreeing with that first claim of planting us that there is no sort of intrinsic conflict between science and particularly evolutionary theory and religion. Um, It's unclear what he's going to say about the second one. So uh, it's not clear whether Dennett thinks there are knockdown arguments involving evolution against the existence of God, or if he just thinks that given evolution, there are no good arguments for God's existence. But then he's going to disagree with Plantinga about both of the last two. Um, And I think those are good places to focus our discussion today. So he's going to disagree that you're warranted to believe in God, even if science conflicts with religion. And then finally, he's going to disagree vehemently with planting a sort of novel argument in the book, which is that it's actually naturalism, not religion, that conflicts with evolutionary theory.
1: Yeah, so let's focus on the fourth of those, which is the one that occupies most of the debate between Plantinga and Dennett. The argument for the conclusion that naturalism is incompatible with evolution. So you could start with just talking about this word naturalism, which is thrown around a lot these days in philosophy. And Plantinga identifies naturalism. I think this is fairly important to his argument. Yeah. That he identifies naturalism as a metaphysical or quasi-religious thesis rather than a scientific thesis. Um, Even though a lot of scientists hold this position. Um, he thinks that it is something like a religious, it functions like a religious claim. He also is correctly observes that, that many practicing scientists actually reject naturalism and they endorse theism. Right. So he takes naturalism to be the denial of the existence of the Abrahamic God, or in general, of any other supernatural forces or causes that are intervening in the world. Many contemporary philosophers understand, um, by naturalism, something slightly different though. Um, and for now, I'm just going to call that scientism. So one leading um, understanding of naturalism is that science is our best guide to what exists. Or another formulation would be that oh, the only facts are ones that are recognized by some empirical science. Um, right. So formulated in those ways, um, scientism is sort of a slightly more restricted thesis. Now, Plantinga's definition that um, there are no supernatural beings and definitely, certainly no, not the, super, the Abrahamic God it's implied by the scientistic view that the only facts that we are licensed or warranted to accept are ones that um, some contemporary empirical science takes as as facts. Um, And if we want to read, if we want to have any ontological commitments, any commitments about what entities there are, then also we need to look to our current best sciences and read off our ontological commitments from those sciences. Um, so if our current best scientific theories do not include God in their list of things that exist, then God is ex- excluded from our ontological commitments. And if our current best scientific theories do not recognize as facts, any propositions such as that God is all powerful or God is a simple immaterial being, then we don't take such propositions to be facts.
0: Right. So that means given that naturalism in planting as narrow sense, that there are no supernatural entities is an entailment of naturalism in the sense of scientism, that means that Plantinga's argument that naturalism is incompatible with evolutionary theory is going to have scientism in its scope as well as naturalism in this more restricted sense. Since if the entailment is false, then the thing that entails it is necessarily false too.
1: Yeah. So um, I think it's worth asking why Plantinga focuses on this deeper layer. So there's what Devin just pointed out that he wants to have the more robust target. That's when to just pull the rug out from under any kind of scientism or naturalism right i think another reason why plantinga focuses on this deeper layer this this entailment of the various scientific positions uh, is that he wants to highlight what he sees as the the mythical function of naturalism within the modern scientific worldview yeah that is that naturalism if it's understood as the emphatic denial of the supernatural rather than just as a view of human understanding and what we are what sorts of claims we are licensed to make and not make What sorts of claims are supported by evidence by empirical evidence and not? Um, So this more deeper understanding of naturalism operates as a framing principle um, for, as he puts it, a scheme for how we interpret ourselves. So he takes naturalism to be mythical in this sense that it that it, it amounts to a denial of our supernatural origins or supernatural destination. It denies as legitimate any story about of where we come from, where we are going, what we ought to do here. Um, that is not couched in the language of science and based on scientific standards for evidence, um whatever those might be.
0: so he's saying naturalism shares this with religion right this this mythical uh function is a way in which naturalism, including scientism, is a sort of quasi religion, um even though most naturalists wouldn't wouldn't cop to describing it that way,
1: yeah, exactly, yeah, and I think what he wants to do is to emphasize that so that we can distinguish between the legitimate claims of science and whatever other interpretations we lay onto it whether um, that's intelligent design or whether that's naturalism
0: yeah i mean for what it's worth i think dennett would cop to that point unlike maybe many naturalists so he famously wrote a new york times op-ed in the early 2000s saying that brights uh atheists basically naturalists were uh, ostracized group in society much like uh, you know religious minorities that are persecuted can be ostracized groups in society and that there should be sort of bright solidarity and they should come together as a group based on this sort of shared conceptual framework this shared myth um, in the same way religious groups do so um, I think Dennett is actually a good pick for planting it to have this debate with a better pick maybe than many other naturalists and that he's not averse to taking his naturalism to be a sort of metaphysical worldview in the way that religion is and in the way that Plantinga sees both of them.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah.
0: So what is Plantinga's argument that this competing worldview, naturalism, is actually incompatible with the theory of evolution by natural selection?
1: The first premise of the argument is a premise about the reliability of our cognitive faculties given the assumptions of evolution and naturalism. And the claim is that the probability that our cognitive faculties are reliable is low, given the conjunction of evolution and naturalism. Now, the justification for that premise, or the reasoning behind that premise, is sort of as follows. The mechanisms of evolution are not so much geared towards producing organisms that can know the truth about the world. Um, as they are with producing organisms that possess fast and ready heuristics to help them survive. So the theory of evolution by natural selection um, has, has this basic idea that the mechanisms, what, and you can include in that selection, um, mutation, drift, um, all of those, their function um, is to produce adaptive behaviors and adaptive structures structures or behaviors that can help an organism to get by in its environment and live long enough to reproduce its genes and then die off in a nutshell. So <laughs> so to put like, to say that like for my survival, it's not so important that I form beliefs about um, the nutritional properties of say the berries in the forest and find reasons in support of those beliefs and like why those berries are nutritional and, and so on and so forth. All that's important for my survival in the um, mythical savanna is that I have reliable mechanisms for tracking berries and acquiring them. So, if my our brains evolved to detect berries to record pleasure at their consumptions, so that that helps fix positive memories and retain information about where to find them again next time I'm in the forest. Um, all of that then helps me get by and survive and right. perpetuate my genes. So, Plantinga's point is that it would be a great stroke of luck if those same mechanisms happened also to be suited to um, establish the truths of beliefs um, and not just produce um, adaptive behaviors. Uh, where truth here is understood broadly as the correspondence of my beliefs with the world. So my beliefs represent the way the world actually is. They don't, they don't just track um, patterns that are beneficial to me for my survival or something. So evolutionary processes are supposed to yield adaptive behaviors and eliminate maladaptive behaviors. They're not supposed to yield true beliefs and eliminate false beliefs.
0: Right, so I've got all sorts of sophisticated true beliefs about berries that say a brown bear doesn't have. But all that matters for adaptiveness is that we both have the capacity to see berries and shove them in our mouths and get the nutrition from them. It doesn't matter for that adaptiveness whether or not we've got those true beliefs about the nutritional content of the berries, right? The bear doesn't have to know what he's doing and have these true beliefs just has to shove the berries in his mouth and get the nutritional value. So too, I don't have to know what I'm doing. I just have to shove in my mouth and get the nutritional value. And so there's this puzzle about why I would count on, on evolution to yield these true beliefs, given that it's totally unnecessary for generating these adaptive behaviors.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In fact it's like even though we may assume that like given evolution many of our or most of the beliefs we happen to have formed or the behaviors we have acquired are adaptive but the whole mechanism of evolution is also consistent with many or all of those beliefs also being false. Right. And thinking that they might be false does not damage the empirical success of evolutionary explanations. Yeah. So what Plantinga does with this point is that if if that's right if it's if it's true that the probability that our cognitive systems are are reliable given evolution and naturalism is low, then we have reason to be skeptical about the reliability of our cognitive systems as truth-conducive devices. That is that while we have reason to believe that our cognitive systems are just fine for helping us survive in the physical world, we don't have reason to think that they are good at producing true beliefs. And this extends also to philosophical beliefs, such as the conjunction of evolution and naturalism. Right. So if that's true, then we have reason to doubt the truth of evolution and naturalism, and we should therefore give it up.
0: Right. The conjunction is self-undermining. If you believe it, then it's going to lead you to a place where you have no reason to to think your belief holds any water. Yeah. And so is Plantinga's conclusion that uh, our cognitive systems are unreliable and we have no good reason for believing anything?
1: No. So his, his purpose is not to discredit evolution. And his all, purpose is also not to convince us that our cognitive systems are unreliable. So he's not interested in discrediting evolution or casting doubt on our our cognitive systems. His purpose is to instead discredit naturalism. Right. He's he's willing to grant that evolution is our current best framework for biological science, but he want, what he wants to discredit is the myth that naturalism, uh, the myth of naturalism that he thinks is unwarrantedly attached to evolutionary science.
0: Right, because he wants to say, here's a way in which it can both be true that we're evolved via natural selection, and we can have confidence that our cognitive functions are reliable. That's that God has lent a helping hand to how we've evolved, and has made it such that we've evolved true beliefs in addition to adaptive behaviors, because evolution hasn't taken a totally unguided course, it's taken a course guided by God. And he thinks that's the only way we can take ourselves to be evolved and have confidence in our in our cognitive faculties.
1: So then if if so once you have you've established that, then the pre-reflective, your everyday believer in the Christian God need not feel any sort of pressure or threat to sign on to this alternative mythology. They can retain their belief in the Christian God that they came to the debate with.
0: Right. So I want to get back to the dynamic between faith and reason in a little bit. But at first I think uh, we should get Dennett's response to this argument of planting is sure. on the table. So Dennett says that there's something really important that is right about in his argument, but then there's also <laughs> something really important that he's wrong about. So what he's right about are, in Dennett's terms, that brains are syntactic engines, not semantic engines. In other words, your brain's like a computer, gets some inputs, it processes them, and then it spits out some outputs, and those outputs make you behave in particular ways, right? So you have perception, you see stuff and hear stuff and smell stuff, your brain processes those perceptual inputs, and then it makes you behave accordingly based on the inputs you've received and the way in which you've processed them. Now, a computer, in getting inputs and processing them and spitting out outputs doesn't like form any true beliefs along the way right all it does is purely syntactically just as a matter of formal computations transforms those inputs in a particular way that leads to certain outputs that makes it you know display something on the screen and so too Dennett says that planting is right to think of our brains as designed by evolution as working in a very similar way where we just get this physical information from our environment through our eyes and ears and nose, our brain transforms it, and it results in us behaving in a particular way. And all that matters as far as evolutionary fitness goes is whether or not those behaviors are adaptive. Now, as Plantinga points out, and then it agrees, at some point in there, your brain also generates beliefs, right? But generating the beliefs doesn't enter directly into the causal story that goes from inputs to processing to outputs. And so Plantinga concludes that the probability that those beliefs are true is gonna be low because they don't play a part in the story of how it is that behaviors become adapted. But Dennett thinks that this inference of Plantinga is where he goes wrong, even though He thinks planting is right, that our brains are basically working like computers here, and it's not um, conceptually necessarily the case that the beliefs be true in order for the behaviors to be adaptive. Nevertheless, he thinks that the probability is very high that an evolutionary process that designed these brains would also end up producing true beliefs as opposed to false beliefs. And to see why Dennett says that we should just need to look at the function of brains, right? At what the sort of processing that brains do is for. In the end, as Plantinga suggests, all of our bodily functions, all of our bodily processes have a single function, and that's producing adaptive behavior, right? But it's also useful to think about specialized subfunctions of different bodily processes, right? So your heart is for pumping blood and circulating it. That's the function of the heart. In the end, it has that function because it contributes to the overall fitness of the organism. But it also makes sense just to focus on the heart and say its function is pumping blood because that's what it does in order to result in eventual adaptive behaviors on the part of the organism. So Dennett says, we should ask what the function of the brain is. Function of the heart is to pump blood. And the function of the brain, he says, is, quote, that brains are for tracking the relevant conditions of the environment and getting it right. right? Brains are for tracking information about what the environment around us is like. And it's a function of brains to reliably represent to us how our environments really are. The function of our brains is like this because it's really useful for adaptive behavior that we have accurate representations of our environment, right? So it's really useful to make sure we're only eating non-poisonous berries and avoiding poisonous berries that we're accurately representing the features of the berries we're about to shove in our mouths. So Dennett's claim is that functioning in a manner that reliably produces true beliefs is precisely how brains contribute to the adaptive behavior of the whole organism. Even though in the end, all that matters is that your brain is generating adaptive behavior and not that it's producing true beliefs, having a brain that produces true beliefs is the most reliable way of producing behavior that ends up being adaptive. And so for Dennett, even though there's no pure necessary conceptual linkage between the true beliefs and the adaptive behavior, There is this really strong contingent linkage that the best way to design a brain to make our behavior adaptive is also going to end up producing true beliefs. And so we should assume that our brains have been designed that way. And indeed, we have good reason to think our brains have been designed that way and that we do, in fact, have many true beliefs. You can consider perceptual beliefs as a sort of paradigm example. So our eyes acquire information about the environment, and then our brains use that information to cause our behavior, right? It's true that, strictly speaking, it doesn't matter for evolutionary fitness that our eyes acquire accurate perceptual information. All that matters is that our behaviors on the basis of the information acquired by our eyes ends up being adaptive. But the most sure way of causing adaptive behavior is for our eyes to transmit accurate information and tell us what the environment is actually like so we can behave appropriately. If our eyes didn't transmit accurate information then we probably run into things and fall in holes a lot, but we don't. Our behavior is more adaptive than that precisely because we've got this accurate information input by our eyes. And so while there's a sense in which evolution doesn't give a fig for accuracy per se, it does sort of indirectly in that accuracy is a really good way of generating adaptive behaviors. And so similarly, just as evolution doesn't give a fig for truth per se, as Plantinga says, um, having brains that produce true beliefs is an extremely useful way of making sure we behave adaptively. Uh, And thus, we shouldn't at all be surprised to find that evolution has designed our brains to generate true beliefs as well as adaptive behaviors.
1: Yeah, so Plantinga's response to this line of argument comes down to drawing a distinction between um, what we might call content and what we might call information, which then leads to a distinction between what Plantinga calls an indicator as opposed to a belief, right? So the basic idea is that there is a categorical difference between content and belief on the one hand and information and indicators on the other. Um, It's not that you just have more and more information, more and more accurate information, then you'll get to belief and content. Uh, Rather, these are just two different things. So the whole story that Dennett has laid out about brains being syntactic devices that have been produced by evolution to reliably uh, track certain sorts of structures in the environment um, and store that information so that the brain can then reuse that information to produce adaptive behaviors doesn't actually get to anything like what we might call belief. So by way of example, he asks us to think about a frog and how a frog sitting on a lily pad um, ends up finding food and by finding food manages to survive and continue on. Um, So the idea is that if you think about a frog who is sitting on a pad, on a lily pad, and every time a fly buzzes past, its tongue just flicks out and grabs the fly. And a frog might do that extremely reliably and very accurately, might be a really effective fly detector and fly grabber. But the question is, um, what does the frog believe about the flies? What does the frog need to represent to itself about the fly in order to succeed in this fly catching behavior that is adaptive for it. And Plantinga's response to the question is that the frog need not have any beliefs whatsoever. It need not have any sorts of um, representations of the fly as a fly and of the fly as conducive for its continued well being or its flourishing or anything of that sort. It's all that matters is that the frog's neurophysiology has come to be such that um, every time. This black fleck uh, moves past in its visual field at a certain distance, um, the brain causes its tongue to flake out um, in an attempt to grab it. Right. So that's what he means, that we can think of the frog's neurophysiology and in general of any evolved um, neurophysiological system as an indicating system, as a as a signal-detecting system. We need not think of it as a belief-producing system, i.e., so of the, the sort of system that produces representations about which we can. Um, ask are these true or false
0: yeah so dennett takes planting uh i think to have um articulated a sort of much more compelling defense of his argument with this distinction between indicators and true beliefs and it causes him to to back up a little bit and refine his response so he says yeah planting is right there is no good reason to think that frogs have two true beliefs as opposed to just indicators or even really to think that frogs have beliefs at all. Um, Now, you might say, look, our brains are a whole lot bigger and more complex than frogs' brains. But that in and of itself might just show that we've got more and more sophisticated indicators. Right, That bigness and complexity and the amount of information we process doesn't necessarily show that we've got to generate true beliefs. It might just show that we've got uh, really sophisticated indication systems. Right. So you might say, look, a computer is way more informationally complex than a frog's brain, um, but computers still just have indicators. They just process the information, which allows them to spit out correct answers, but nowhere along that line do they produce like an understanding of the information that they're processing such that you could say that the computer itself has true beliefs, right? Right. And so the question that that Planting has put his finger on here, which is a really interesting question, an important question in the philosophy of mind, not just in uh, this sort of argument about the relationship between science and religion, is what is it about human beings that distinguishes us from frogs and computers such that we've got true beliefs as opposed to mere sophisticated indicator systems. And planting a suggestion is that whatever it is about human beings that makes us have true beliefs as opposed to sophisticated indicator systems can't be explained by the conjunction of evolution and naturalism. Because if you think evolution is proceeding in a way that's unguided by any sort of God, then there's no reason for us ever to develop true beliefs, or there's no reason to think that it's likely we would develop true beliefs as opposed to mere complex indicator system. But Dennett thinks that planting uh, is sort of artificially restricting the resources that the naturalist has access to in responding to this argument. And that planting is suggesting that in order to explain true beliefs, a naturalist better just appeal... To biological evolution that's unguided because the naturalist is a naturalist, um, and that they've got recourse to no other sort of explanation of why human beings have lots of true beliefs and not just reliable indicators. But Dennett points out that human beliefs, even on a sort of naturalistic worldview, aren't just the product of unguided biological evolution, they're also the product of human language use and the various ways in which humans refine what they believe by talking to each other, and relatedly by cultural evolution, by the ways in which it's not only our biology that evolves, but it's also our cultural practices, our way of relating to each other and sharing methods and tools and perspectives that allow us to understand the world. And according to Dennett, the reason we can be confident that we have all of these true beliefs and not mere indicators can be explained by, from a naturalistic point of view by pointing to our cultural capacities and our linguistic capacities and how those have allowed us to refine our representations um, such that we have an understanding of how our indicators are accurately representing the environment, rather than just those low-level accurate indicators. In the end, Dennett says, in one of his more uh, provocative lines, that planting view betrays a failure of imagination, not an insight into necessity. So planting is saying that the naturalist has restricted their explanatory power so much that it's impossible for them to offer a good explanation of why we can count on our cognitive capacities being reliable. And Dennett says that planning is just uh, showing off a failure of imagination here. Planning is just failing to imagine the ways in which language and culture could conspire with biology in order to make our cognitive capacities reliable, even without any sort of divine intervention.
1: Yeah, I wonder if, um, I wonder what Plantinga would say to the cultural evolution point and that that language and culture can make good on the limitations of biology.
0: Yeah, an unfortunate um, feature of debate books is that the debate must end at some point, and Dennett gets in the last word here. So we we don't know what Plantinga's response to this line is.
1: Yeah, but you might think that one sort of plausible response to it is what are the reasons for thinking that human culture? the evidence that we have of human culture gives us reason to think that we have made progress in striking upon the truth. Because I mean, the evidence of human culture is I guess the evidence that's not coming from the biological sciences or the physical sciences, but rather from the, the human sciences, from sociology, from anthropology, from history, right. from literature. And it would be, you might think that it, it would, some, it would, some would be a really bold person to argue that the recorded human history that we have in the form of documents and material remains and so on and beliefs and practices is yeah. a steady progress yeah. towards um, greater truth or, or even greater goodness. One could make that argument and people do make that argument but um, I think it's, it's one that's definitely not on as sure a footing as is betrayed by Dennett's claims on behalf of cultural evolution. So, I mean, somebody like like planting it could could still say that. Well, um, we have what we know of human cultural evolution is very very short, given compared to the history of the universe. Right. And there's many a historian who has wondered whether there is any um, sense or order to the course of history, or whether it's just one damn thing after another. On um, like <laughs> the point he said, and so there's plenty of evidence given the limited view we have of human history to think that human beings are not very good at ordering their affairs rationally.
0: Yeah. So I think this nicely directs us back to discussing what we discussed in the last half of last week's episode, which is this relationship between faith and reason. Because in the end, this fundamental conflict between Plantinga and Dennett does really seem to be, as Plantinga identifies, um, a conflict between conflicting worldviews that they're both bringing to the table as assumptions. Dennett doesn't take himself to have a sort of compelling story about how cultural evolution has made it such that we have reliable cognitive faculties, right? Instead he just tries to put cultural evolution on the table as one of the things that could make it such that we have reliable cognitive faculties um, even if planting is argument against evolution by natural selection biological evolution by natural selection guaranteeing our reliable cognitive faculties is a good one right because the starting point is that both Dennett and Plantinga think it's obvious that somehow humans ended up with reliable cognitive faculties right neither of them is a sort of human skeptic, they both think we're in this place where it's pretty clear that human beings have reliable cognitive faculties that let us do science and discover evolution by natural selection, for instance. And then the question is: what do you have to believe or and, and what may you not believe in order to stand by that faith in our cognitive faculties? And planting his argument is supposed to be that it's impossible to be a naturalist and to have faith in cognitive faculties. And Dennett's saying, no, 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 here's a way in which it's possible by gesturing vaguely at cultural evolution and having faith that therein lies some sort of um, acceptable explanation. Dennett has faith that therein lies some sort of acceptable explanation because he's a committed naturalist. He's committed to the view that there are no supernatural entities that are going to help us explain our reliable faculties. And so he must think that those reliable faculties he believes in come from somewhere. And so he points to cultural evolution as a possible source. Plantinga is doing the exact same thing when he says we've got these reliable faculties, but evolution doesn't tell us where they come from. And so it must be somehow due to God guiding evolution or otherwise who is giving us these reliable faculties by making us in his image, right? In both cases, um, all they're doing is trying to use reason to sort of carve out space for what they already believed on the basis of faith.
1: Yeah, that seems right. Yeah, you might also think that, well, that planting a position is sort of suggesting or one of its motivations is that um, um, if naturalism is going to try to ground itself, or if you're going to try to ground an evolution, a scientific worldview from within itself, um, you're always going to fail. You need to go outside of it in order to have some sort of foundation. So you might, you, you could think of the debate as sort of an opposition between a foundationalist who thinks that there's this scheme, this set of practices and institutions and procedures for making good sense of our, empirical experience but empirical experience by itself is always going to be self-undermining unless it's supported by um, it's going to it ought to lead you to skepticism or something unless it is grounded in something that is uh, no, known in a more basic
0: way yeah i mean so this is the impetus for descartes philosophical project yeah. right descartes wants a firm foundation for the sciences and part of that is a realization that you have to have these this basic metaphysical worldview in place in order to build your scientific edifice on, the science isn't going to provide its own foundation, no. right? With that said, it's not clear that planting as insinuation that naturalism is a sort of epistemically worse off foundation than theism holds any water. So to return to Descartes again, in the first meditation... Descartes has radical doubts that are generated by considering both a theistic worldview and by considering an atheistic worldview, right? So one of his radical doubts, the most famous one, is the evil demon argument where he imagines some sort of supernatural uh, entity that makes us systematically deceived. But another one is where he imagines that we've evolved by something like natural selection and that's made us systematically deceived. Right? So Descartes already anticipated, Plantinga's argument, that there's nothing about natural selection that guarantees the truth of our beliefs. Indeed, natural selection might have made us systematically deceive, such that we think we've got true beliefs when we really don't. But that doesn't necessarily vindicate Plantinga's point of view. Because there's also a radical skeptical hypothesis that God isn't a good guy who made all our beliefs true. Maybe God is this evil guy who made all of our beliefs false, right? Whichever worldview you adopt, there is a way of using that worldview to show it's possible that either a supernatural entity or a naturalistic process has made our cognitive capacities unreliable, just as there's a way to argue that either a supernatural entity or a naturalistic process has made our capacities reliable. So it's not clear to me that in the end, thinking about our cognitive capacities and how they might have come become reliable is going to shake up your foundational worldview, it's just going to seem to affirm the worldview you started with and deny the other one, whichever worldview you started with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes me think that since you brought up Descartes, that Plantinga's target is very different from Descartes. So I don't think Plantinga is especially interested in using his metaphysics as the foundation of his philosophy of science. Good. So he is interested in pointing out that the current best philosophy of science, i.e. naturalism, is ill-suited to play the metaphysical role that its proponents tacitly take it to play. Um, but he's not so interested in arguing that, I don't think he's so interested in arguing that theism is, it should be accepted because it is a good foundation for current evolutionary biology. So I think what's what's yeah, more important indeed. for him is to preserve the autonomy of faith, which he thinks is, rests not on whatever support it can provide for are scientific practices, but he thinks that it rests on something that he refers to a few times as the sensus divinitatis, It's it's a a basic primitive itself, not further justifiable or in need of justification, recognition of the supernatural.
0: Yeah. So Planting is, I think, most famous work, or at least the work that sort of put him on the map was in arguing that we should take faith in God to be this sort of basic belief grounded in this basic sense of the divine. And he argued for that by drawing an analogy with our belief in other minds. He says, look, the main rational argument for believing in other minds, the argument by analogy that says, well, Nabil's a lot like me in a lot of respects, so I should assume that he's conscious just like I am. That's far from an airtight argument. There are a lot of ways to cast doubt on the argument from analogy. But Plantinga says, it's a mistake to think that my reason for believing that Nabil is conscious, that Nabil has a mind like mine, is based on this sort of analogy to begin with. Rather, I just sort of have a faith, based in a basic cognitive capacity to recognize the people around me as people, that Nabil and everybody else I interact with is conscious just like I am. And this faith is warranted just because I'm sort of set up to live in the world taking this on faith, and there can be no more basic kind of warrant than that, right? It's a built-in feature of any proper sort of foundational metaphysics, and you build rational arguments on top of that sort of pre-built-in foundation you don't try to argue for the foundation itself. And Plantinga says the exact same thing goes for faith in God as it goes for faith in other minds. Um, We have this sort of sense of the divine, he thinks, um, as just a natural cognitive capacity as human beings. And that faith is perfectly warranted in this sort of basic way that faith that other people are conscious is warranted. We don't need to reason our way towards its warrant. We don't need to try to square it with the other things we believe. It's the bedrock that we should, uh, that we are justified in taking on faith from the get-go and then building all of the rest of the edifice of our of our knowledge around, right? So the way in which Descartes differs from Plantinga is that Descartes thinks he can, by doing metaphysics, by doing philosophy, reason himself to a place where he builds a foundation for the rest of his knowledge. Whereas Plantinga thinks that, no, 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 that first step isn't a step of reasoning. That first step is just taking on faith, the things we're predisposed to believe, and then the reasoning begins.
1: Yeah. Now, the, now there's an interesting question here for Dennett and for the naturalists in general. Yeah, yeah. So if the naturalist accepts Plantinga's characterization of naturalism as something that is added onto um, the science, so it's a quasi-religious or metaphysical thesis, not strictly a scientific thesis, what, what must the naturalist further build into their metaphysics in order to get it to be an adequate, a satisfactory, coherent foundation for science? Right.
0: Yeah, it's a good question.
1: Seems they need some sort of notion of the good or of orderliness as, as, a, as a primitive principle. If the general cosmological model is that the world is evolving or it, it unfolds in time through natural processes, then um, by Plantinga's lights, it seems that what Plantinga would say is that um, they need to have some sort of commitment to the intrinsic goodness-directedness of those natural processes. And then you get a different sort of naturalism. You get it sort of like an Aristotelian naturalism rather than a naturalism that thinks of value as something just accidental.
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems like Dennett's naturalistic metaphysics, insofar as he's willing to admit that it's religion-like and that it informs how he interprets all the findings of science and so on. It isn't uh, metaphysics that goes in for value built into the structure of the world, as you're suggesting now. Um, Nor is it a metaphysics that goes in for there being a way the world is that we should just accept on faith as a sort of basic belief before investigating and using our reason. Rather, it just seems to be a sort of purely negative worldview, right? And I take it that this is what Plantinga thinks is sort of insufficient about it, in that Dennett takes it on faith that there is nothing that deeply structures the world in terms of values built into the structure of it or a God presiding over it, that we have any reason to believe in absent sort of positive empirical evidence of the existence of that thing, right? And what that does is it leaves him without any sort of Cartesian foundation for his knowledge. So the question becomes whether you in fact do need a positive metaphysical foundation For the course of science, or whether um, science can somehow sustain itself and serve as a complete registry of all that we know about the world. I don't know, are you attracted to foundationalism? why is there this pull to thinking that there must be a foundation on which we build rather than thinking, no, 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 the correct metaphysical picture to enter with is that we're just sort of making it up as we go along. And uh, to to take there to be some sort of basic warranted thing is just going to throw off how we view the rest of it rather than provide this sort of Cartesian foundation.
1: Well, I don't know if I'm a foundationalist, but if your foundations are true, then you're secure.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, the problem for the coherentist, for the for the the, let's take coherentism as the opposite, uh, as the alternative to foundationalism, that you don't need an ultimate foundation. Basically, your rational confidence in your belief system, is proportional to the strength of the connections among your beliefs. Right. So you have a broadly naturalistic worldview. You've excised all supernatural beings. You're just looking at to your sciences to tell you what to believe and what what there is, um, and you're just gathering as much of that and then building links among all of those beliefs. Right. So you have security to the degree that you have connections among your beliefs and representations. Now, the danger is that you might have a very, very tightly knit system of beliefs, but it might be completely at odds with what reality is like. Yeah. So, and this is something that, you know, happens. It has happened over the course of history and it sometimes happens with terrible consequences where entire societies end up with this very skewed worldview leading to disastrous consequences. Um, But if rational confidence is a, it's basically just to be measured by the degree of coherence among your beliefs, then well, then that's, that's entirely possible.
0: It's entirely possible that it's entirely off base. Yeah, yeah so this goes back to the point that both Dennett and Planting share one article of faith. And that's that our cognitive faculties are by and large reliable, that our beliefs are by and large, not only a coherent set, but a coherent set that actually describes the world. Yeah. And so the question is, what grounds that faith? right? And Plantinga obviously thinks theism grounds that faith. And Dennett thinks, I have no clear answer to what grounds that faith, but I have some ideas about how we could come up with an answer if only we understood cultural evolution better. And you might think that both of those approaches have their sort of epistemic risks. In that thinking you've got a secure foundation is great if you your Syracuse foundation yeah, is true, mature. right? <laughs> um, yeah. But if planting is wrong that God exists and secures his, his knowledge where it is, then he too must face up to the possibility that he's wrong to have faith in the reliability of his cognitive faculties. Whereas Dennett has shakier grounds currently for thinking that his cognitive faculties are reliable, um, but at least he's not committing the additional epistemic error of thinking that he's got this great, secure reason for holding them to be reliable, rather than just the sort of belief that, uh, look, you got to take them to be reliable if you're going to do science and get anywhere, even though it's always possible that, that we're far off base. Right. And so the question is, like, how much irrational confidence should we have that we're not so far off base? Should we think that it's impossible that we're off base and therefore this foundation for our knowledge must exist as a sort of basic belief? Or should we just have a sort of faith that we're probably on base that keeps us going and keep on, keeping on doing science Even though we can admit, since we have no foundation, that for all we know, we might just be developing a coherent worldview that describes some possible world, but doesn't describe the world we actually live
1: in. Yeah. Also, I I doubt that Dennett is that much of a skeptical and revisionist in this position. I think he... My sense is that he sort of signed on to naturalism.
0: Oh yeah, he's definitely got this faith, but I think he would admit if pressed that he has no deep metaphysical foundation for this faith. The question is whether having a deep metaphysical foundation gets you anywhere or not.
1: Yeah, I think Plantinga might say that one advantage of his picture is that his foundations are not really very responsive to the state of our empirical knowledge. Right. So he's perfectly happy for scientists to do their thing and revise their theories and their representations of the empirical world as they see fit. And he doesn't think that it can, in principle, undermine the faith that is based on the sense of the divine. Right. That, that sense in the divine and his religious faith and his faith in the existence of a God who created the world and whatever the, created all the physical laws, whatever they turn out to be, is much more encompassing than just issues of making good on our scientific theories. I mean, that doesn't address the question of, you know, well, what if you're wrong? And like, what you take to be the sense of the divine in you is actually just nothing. It's just your liver or something.
0: Yeah, but it also raises the further question, well, if it's true that like science could progress, however, in whichever direction, and it would never shake your faith in the divine then is that faith in the divine really serving as a necessary metaphysical foundation for the sciences, or is it just this whole other thing? Yeah, exactly. So So Stephen Jay Gould talks about non-overlapping magisteria and says that science and religion are non-overlapping magisteria. You've got your metaphysics provided by religion on the one hand, and then you have your scientific worldview provided by science and whether or not you hold one says nothing about whether or not you hold the other, right? And and there is no real conflict there. And Plantinga seems to agree that there is no conflict there. But if that's the case, then it's not clear uh, what motivates this idea that you need some sort of metaphysical foundation at all. Why can't you just do the science as Dennett does without the metaphysics?
1: Yeah, so I think where Plantinga would differ, um, would disagree gold is that they're not non-overlapping. He thinks that religion provides the overarching framework for interpreting all of our activities of which science is one part. Science has its autonomous domain, but its autonomy is not absolute. Science is one thing that humans engage in. They also create art and make movies and post on Instagram and all of those things. And religion is supposed to be the, the, the grander framework within which we have to make sense of each of these activities. Planting is willing to grant a lot of autonomy to science, but what he's resisting is the idea that science could be an overarching framework on par with religion. Right. Like science, science cannot, for example, help us make sense of our values, or it cannot help us make sense of uh, the significance of art, um, and so on.
0: Right. Naturalism, though it may be worldview-like in some respects, religious worldview-like in some respects, is a quite impoverished worldview compared to traditional religions. And so I think the deep question that differentiates someone like Dennett and someone like Plantinga is the question of whether or not you do need a worldview that has these substantive metaphysical commitments in order to provide meaning to life and to art and so on and so forth and to science itself yeah good well that sets us up really well for next week's podcast in which i'm going to talk about gilbert ryle's discussion of the many partially overlapping but also partially distinct ways of carving up the world that humans engage in And how maybe the fundamental philosophical problem lies in figuring out how all of those different ways of carving up the world fit together. Obviously, introducing God is one major way in which human beings have attempted to fit some of them together. Developing this notion of a coherent scientific project that involves all of these different sciences is another way in which humans have tried to piece them together. But as we'll see, puzzles remain, whichever sort of approach you go in for. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Nabil. I appreciate you coming back on the podcast, and um, I hope you have a great day. Ba-da-ba, ba-da-ba-ba. Ba-da-ba, Thanks again to Dr. Nabil Hamid. That's it for this week, and for our discussion of the relationship between science and religion. We won't, however, be moving on quite yet from the tangle of philosophical problems caused by trying to square science with traditional ways of viewing the world. Instead, we'll turn to Dennett's mentor, Gilbert Ryle, and his analysis of the relationship between the world of science and the everyday world. That's next time on episode 11 of Dialogues, Meditation.